Amen. Well, I appreciate that, Brother Keegan. Thankful for that truth that he is always faithful, uh, regardless of some of the dumb decisions we do in our life. Uh, God's always faithful to us, even though we're not always faithful to him. And uh, sure, very thankful for all that the Lord has done and will continue to do in our lives. Well, we've started into a series. Uh, boys, if you want to go start passing those out, uh, the handouts for tonight, <clears throat> and uh, giving you pretty much all the notes. So you've got the notes there. There are blanks. Uh, that you want to fill in and follow along. And so that just gives us the opportunity to cover a lot of ground briskly. And um, I just trust and pray that this series will be a help and a blessing uh, in more ways than one. And so looking forward to tonight. And so we're, um, it's got the wrong text on the screen. I forgot to change that out. So it's not Matthew 16, 18. So don't go there. It is Psalm 119, 97. So we're going to turn your Bibles to Psalm 119. And uh, verse number 97, Psalm 119, and of course the longest chapter in the Bible, <clears throat> Psalm 119 and verse number 97. Now this is a little bit of an atypical thing uh, for me. We've been doing this on Sunday nights, and I feel like it's been beneficial. Uh, I'm a line-by-line, -line, expositional, book-by-book -book preacher, just that's how I've always done it, love doing it. Now on Sunday nights we've been dealing a little bit more with topics here of late and trying to tackle things and have some notes and kind of be a little bit more pragmatic and practical about what we're dealing with. And so uh, anyways, uh, looking forward to that here even this evening. So Psalm 119 is kind of a starting point for us. I wish we could take time and preach that whole chapter and all the verses surrounding the verse we're going to be dealing with, but we'll use it more as a starting point. So if you found your place there in Psalm 119, if you'll stand with me if you're able to, to honor the reading of God's Word, Psalm 119 and verse number 97. <clears throat> Psalm 119 and verse number 97 says this, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. I love how the psalmist here writes out this. He says, I am absolutely in love with the Bible. I can't stop thinking about it all day long. And I hope that's your testimony in your heart. I know sometimes we can get a little uh, familiar with the scriptures. But if you think with me for just a moment, what if the Bible were gone? And you didn't have the scriptures anymore. I am eternally grateful for the Word of God and so thankful we have the Bible. So tonight we're going to talk about this truth, biblical authority. Biblical authority. So may God bless the His Word. You can be seated. And thank you for standing uh, in honor of the scriptures as always. <clears throat> if you're uh, unaware, I'm a little bit of a numismatist, uh, somebody who loves... Uh, looking through and collecting coins and bills and things like that. Me and my son got into it, Nate, uh, some years ago. We've enjoyed doing that. Uh, most of the coins that we have in our collection now, and uh, don't get too judgy. I see some of y'all like, I thought you were in your 30s, and now you're looking at me like I'm 80 or something. Come on now, it's a, it's a, it's a cool, hip hobby for young people to have. Anyways, so anyways, um, most of the coins that we have, we got by going to the bank and getting boxes of just coin and then searching through them and pulling out, culling out the good stuff and then taking those coins back to another bank that we had and rinse, wash, repeat. We did that over and over again and sorted through coins and 
found a lot of cool stuff. That's actually how we got hooked. The first time we did that, we didn't even get a box of coins. We just got some rolls. And Nate found an almost like mint condition Indian head uh, scent in there that was just so cool to find in circulation in that good a condition. It was the nicest coin of that caliber that we've ever found, and it was the first time we ever did it. And so that kind of hooked us, and we just enjoyed doing that. Now, one thing you'll learn with any um, coin or with any money is where there's value, there will always be counterfeits. So if there's something that becomes valuable and people say, wow, this coin is worth lots of money or this holds value to it, there will be those who will try to produce a knockoff or a counterfeit that really is made of invaluable material or something that's not very valuable and passes off as if it is that very valuable thing. Now, they'll tell you when I worked uh, in retail for a while at Bass Pro Shop when I was in Bible college, uh, they'll tell you how to identify the real thing because they tell you if you can spot the real thing, then when you experience a counterfeit, then you'll know the difference because you know what the real thing is. So instead of trying to identify all the counterfeits that are out there, instead become so acquainted with the real thing when a counterfeit comes along, you go, something's fishy here. I don't know exactly what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but this isn't real. Something's not legit about this. And the more we've experienced of handling coins and studying and learning more about it, it's interesting when you come across something and you go, the weight, the look, the feel, the material, it's just not right. Something doesn't fit here. It's just not genuine. Now, as we journey through this study, our primary goal here is to do this. What is genuine? What is a biblical church and a, a, a Baptist church supposed to look like according to the scriptures so that then we might be able to step back and identify, oh, now it makes sense why that group and why that denomination, why this group of what they believe is not accurate because we have handled and experienced that which is accurate and genuine so much so that we say something's not right about this other. And so hopefully that is our objective as we go through this, that it will become plain that we will be see, able to see what makes a Baptist a Baptist and why we believe if it's Bible, it's Baptist. If it's Baptist, it's Bible. You say, well, that sounds prideful. Well, if it wasn't true, I'd go find the group that it did line up with. <clears throat> I want to be a part of a church that believes the scriptures. And that's exactly what we're going to look at even here this evening. So uh, Baptist distinctives. Um, as we talked about last week, even when we kind of introduced the series here, uh, we're going to talk about this uh, Baptist distinctives primarily. We might get into a little bit of the history, uh, but <clears throat> a denomination is another type of the same, right? You have all these coins, then you have denominators. They're different at parts of the same thing, but a distinction says it's other than, it's different than. And I'm thinking we can say this, we're not a denomination as much as we are a distinction. There's something distinctly different about being a Baptist. And so we're going to look at eight major areas <clears throat> that are distinct to Baptists and be able to identify what makes Baptists unique. So <clears throat> we're first going to tackle the uh, eight major distinctives, obviously, that we talked about there. So this actually spells out an acrostic. So you have the word Baptist, and each one of those is a part of Baptist distinctives. 
So B would be biblical authority that we're going to talk about here tonight. A, autonomy of the local church. P, priesthood of the believers. T, two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I, individual soul liberty. S, saved, baptized church membership. T, two offices, pastor and deacon. And then S, separation of church and state. These are Baptist distinctives and that are distinct to us as Baptists. Now we're going to deal with each one of these each week, deal with each one of these things to be able to identify why I am a Baptist. So let's start with this first one here, the B or biblical authority. What exactly is biblical authority? Now this is a huge distinction for Baptists is that we believe that the Bible is our authority. So what does it mean for biblical authority? Well, what we mean by biblical authority is the Bible is our only source of faith and practice. We don't have any extra biblical texts, traditions that mandate the believer or the church. Now, uh, listen, we have bylaws, but those are kind of more uh, for a function of the church, uh, of things of how we're going to conduct business and things like that. They have nothing to do about our faith and about our religious practice of how we're going to exercise. The Bible truly is the only thing that we're basing everything that our church does off of. If the scriptures say we ought to do it, we're going to do that. And if they say don't do that, then we're going to refrain from doing that. Now there's a lot of churches out there that have become more social driven. What does society dictate that we ought to be? Well, let's be that. We're going to be a Burger King church. Have it your way, right? And, and listen, there's a lot of churches moving in that direction. And then there's other churches that are steeped in tradition and are steeped in creeds and dogmas. And so if a priest says it or if it's written in some uh, creed that was written a long time ago or some dogma or statement of a church, then that becomes their faith and practice. But I'm thankful as a Baptist we have this. We don't have all that stuff. We have the scriptures. Thus saith the word of God, thus saith the Lord, the Bible is what we have that mandates everything that happens uh, within the church. So what is the purpose of biblical authority? Why, why is it unique that we believe in biblical authority? Well, number one, it gives an infallible truth. <clears throat> Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm really thankful for this. Infallible means is this, without error. And I'm thankful the Bible gives us something that is without error and it's always true. If we were dependent on a man, such as the case with the Catholic Church, where the Pope is the one who dictates what should and shouldn't happen and what is true and what's not, we're trusting a fallible, sinful man to give truth. And I'm thankful that we have a God whose thoughts and ways are so much higher than any of ours. And I'm thankful in His great wisdom, He has given us a book, the Word of God, that is without error and it gives us an infallible truth. We know what we're reading and believing is absolutely true because it comes from God. Number two, it gives us perfect direction. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a lot of people even have this as a life verse. It says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. I'm thankful for this. Boy, it would be an uncertain direction 
uh, uncertain path of where you ought to go and where you ought to be if we were basing it on anything else other than the scriptures. But I'm thankful the scriptures give us this. You know when the scriptures give light to our path and direction to where we go, you know it's this. It's good. That's a good path to go. That's a good direction to be on. Why? Because it's from God and from God's word. Number three, it shows us the way of salvation. Boy, this is so key. You say, well, how do people come up with all these weird belief systems about how people get saved? And This is the way to heaven and that's the path to heaven. This is the way of forgiveness of sin. It's because they're believing in something that the Bible doesn't teach because the Bible has ceased being the authority. See, John 14, 6 says, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Acts 4, 13 says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Listen, when we preach this book and when we share the gospel from this book, we're not coming to somebody with our authority or in the name of our church or in the name of our pastor or in the name of some church or creed. We're coming on the authority of God himself and God's word. And we're saying, listen, in God's word, it says this is how you get saved. Now, that is so uh, reassuring and confident that on biblical authority, we can say we have the message of salvation because we're taking it directly from the pages of Scripture. Number four, it gives us a message worth preaching. Oh, this is so good. Acts 8, 4 says, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, listen, <clears throat> there is a, a mandate uh, in the scriptures that we are to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke with all long suffering and doctrine, right? The word of God literally is the most efficient and the best way that we can deliver God's message. Why? Because it is God's message. This is God's message to the masses. This is what God has called and instructed us to give. Uh, say this, we can't just come up with our own ideas, our own methods, and our own message. God's already given us all of our marching orders and exactly what we're supposed to do right here in the pages of the Scripture. And so I'm very thankful we say this. As a pastor, it's a blessing to stand behind the pulpit and know I'm not up here saying what I want to say. That's really tempting sometimes. Sometimes it slips out a little bit, but... As a pastor, listen, I don't have the right to stand up behind a pulpit and use it as a bully pulpit to get across my agenda or what I want to say. No, no, you have the opportunity to preach the whole counsel of God. And as a pastor, I have to give an account to God one day for how I used this pulpit and led this flock uh, and we say this, I don't want to get before the Lord one day and say, well, I was more interested in saying what I wanted to say. I thought I had something really important to tell them. Well, God's already given us his message. Amen. So the job of the pastor then becomes this. Herald the truth that he's already given you. Amen. In a timely and fitting way for the culture and time that God has placed you in, declare the timeless truth of the word of God. Amen. Now, listen, that's true not only of the pastor, but it's true of us as a whole church. Listen, I'm thankful as a church, we've got a message worth preaching and worth hearing. And listen, in a world... Mm, Oh, this is, I'm trying to get on a hobby horse with this. But listen, everyone out there is saying, man, if people are looking for in churches. You just got to, you just got to do this. And you got to do that. And, and man, if you change your name and you do this and you do this, people will just flock. 
It's like the mentality is build it and they will come, you know, field of dreams type thing. And, and listen, what my experience is, the more I talk to people, especially my generation and down, <clears throat> is there has been so much of that in their life where people have almost just come and spoon fed them like convenience and spoon fed them uh, lies that they are starving for the truth. That they go to churches looking for the truth of the gospel and instead they get fed candy. They get fed a bunch of stuff of, well, how do you want it? I, don't, I didn't come here for me to tell you what I want. I came here because I'm looking for answers. I can't figure out my life. I need the truth. And what I found is people who come and visit a Bible preaching church, they walk away and they go, wow, y'all actually preach the Bible. Amen. That's a rare thing. <laughs> when did that become a rare thing in churches? Amen. But it has. Now, I'm thankful, as a, uh, if we say, if we're going to claim to be Baptist, we need to be biblically based even in our preaching, and that needs to be the appetite of the church. Amen. If Bible Baptist Church can be known for nothing else, it want to be known as this, that we are Bible Baptist Church, yeah. that we have an emphasis in the preaching, reading, and love of the Scriptures. Boy, seriously, if we could be known as nothing else, I would love for somebody to come there. Oh, that's the church that preaches the Bible. Amen. Oh, that's the church that actually reads the scriptures and, and learns the scriptures. Yeah, I mean, that, that really is a Baptist distinctive is that we hold to the word of God as our only rule of faith and practice. We believe in biblical authority because it really is a message that is worth preaching. Okay. Uh, let her uh, be there. There can only be biblical authority if we believe the Bible we have is authoritative. We can answer the question of authority by dealing with two truths. Inspiration, preservation. Now, we're going to put a lot of emphasis on inspiration. And, and if you don't know the difference of these words, we'll, we'll work on that, okay? So inspiration is the first thing we're going to deal with. So what do we mean by inspiration? By inspiration, we're talking about this. How did God give us this? How did God take His Word and give it to us in written form? Okay. Now, preservation is going to deal with the idea of how do we know we still have it? Because if God gave it thousands of years ago, how do we know what we got today is what He gave us way back when? But inspiration talks about how God gave it to man in the first place. So when you have people like Paul and John and Moses and people that are writing the Scriptures... How can we know that that was God's message that was being penned? How do we know that? Well, that's where the doctrine of inspiration comes along. So there's two key verses, uh, text in the scriptures that deal with this. The first one is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Now these are nestled inside of a um, context. And I wish I had time. Uh, one of these days we'll preach through 2 Peter and 2 Timothy and we'll re regale all this in all of its glory. Uh, I was debating actually on Sunday nights instead of going into this series, diving into 2 Peter because it's a good book and I like it. But anyways, uh, you, you ought to study it out. Study all of 2 Peter chapter 1. It's a fantastic chapter. It's wonderful. But here's what's nestled in there. It says this, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So three, three kind of important points with this verse that it teaches us. First, holy men of God spoke, which means this, human penmanship. I, I, no, none of us are ever going to be able to refute the idea that it was Paul whose pen hit the paper. That it was John's pen that hit the paper. 
that it was Moses' pen that hit the paper. We're not trying to deny that, okay? Actually, the only bit of Scripture that we know of that was written by God Himself were the Ten Commandments. God actually etched in stone and wrote those, right? Everything else, we understand, there's human penmanship. It was actually a man that wrote it. So if somebody says, well, you can't trust the Bible, a man wrote it. I'll say this, yeah, a man wrote it, but God's the author. Now, we're going to talk about that when we look in this. Okay, the second thing is this, they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, here's where the other part of this comes. Human penmanship, divine authorship, which simply means this, they were moved to write by God. They didn't come up with these ideas on their own. Okay, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so we'll get into that in a second. Third thing is this. The Bible is a supernatural book. God was the active source of Scripture. It actually tells us right there in 2 Peter 1.21 that the prophecy came not by the will of man. came not of old time by the will of man. Which simply means this. It wasn't like they woke up one day and they were like, I am going to write my words down. It wasn't their desire or their will to write it. Instead, they were moved by the Holy Ghost to write this. God inspired them to write. The second verse that's so important with this doctrine is 2 Timothy 3.16, which states this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, in righteousness. You say, these aren't in our notes there, but I love that it says this, Scripture is profitable for four different things in your life. The Bible says it's profitable for doctrine, what's right. It's, it's good for reproof, what's wrong. It's good for correction, how to get wrong things right. And it's good for instruction, how to keep it right. <laughs> I'm thankful the Bible does all of those things. Simultaneously, the Bible can accomplish all those. And I think, well, it's profitable for that. So three points on this verse as well, though. God gave us the scriptures through inspiration. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Somebody maybe says this, well, what is inspiration? Well, number two there, inspiration it means divine breathed. The source material was given by God. Number three there, which in turn makes the scripture profitable. The reason the scriptures are valuable is because they're actually God's words. So somebody might look at a painting and they look at that beautiful painting somebody did, and they might say, wow, I wonder what their inspiration was. When we look at Scripture, we say, why did human pens hit paper? We say this, because God gave them the words to say. That was the inspiration. It came directly from God. So let's take a, a deeper look at taking these verses, these two verses here, and kind of come up with some more technical terms but we're going to define them of what inspiration is. We're going to go through these quickly. The first one is this, confluent inspiration, which simply means this, two agents. Confluent, which we've already talked about here, simply means this, it's a product of two things. Men who actually wrote it and God who gave them what to write. Acts 4.25 says, Who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Acts 13.35 says, Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Uh, it's kind of like this. <clears throat> if I'm using this pen, and I'm going to take a piece of paper, sorry, Andrew, and I'm going to take this and I'm going to write something. Who's writing something? Well, in a real technical sense, the pen is. 
I don't have any ink that comes out of my body. I'm not an octopus. <clears throat> the pen is writing, but who's actually writing? I am. Now, again, you say, well, man, that's kind of a confusing way of looking at it. But if you think about it in this way, in how God did this, the people that wrote it were the pen. He was the hand that moved them. They were the human instrument that God used to write the scriptures, but he's the one that's moving them. They were moved by the Holy Ghost, borne along by him. I didn't mark on your paper here, okay, because I don't have any ink coming out of me because I'm not an octopus. Okay, <clears throat> so there's two agents involved in that. Okay, the second thing is this, verbal inspiration, which simply means this, inspiration goes to the very words. Uh, there's a dangerous teaching that's out there that says God only inspired the thoughts, Thought for thought. But we're going to look at some verses here where it actually says that God wrote His words. It's not just the thoughts that, were pre that are inspired. It's the very words themselves that He has given us. Uh, it says over, uh, again, we've got a ton of verses here. I'm not going to go into all of these. But Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words plural there, shall not pass away. Matthew 5, 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Uh, Exodus 24, 4, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 6, And these words which I commanded thee this day shall be in thine heart. Now listen, we got tons of verses here we could go through, but I'm thankful God inspired His words. goes to the very words. Okay, number three. Plenary inspiration. This simply means it's all inspired equal. Inspiration goes to every part. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That simply means this, from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 21, every bit of it is inspired. That doesn't mean it's all equally interesting. If you've read through your Bible, you know what I'm talking about. Okay? You're doing really good, and you're, if you've started reading through the Bible, you're doing a year through the Bible, you're doing really good right now. Let me know how things are going about the end of February, beginning of March, when you get through numbers and stuff like that, right? No, listen, I, I, I understand. All Scripture is profitable, though, right? Absolutely. It says it's all profitable. It's all inspired. That doesn't mean it's all equally interesting to read, though. Uh, sometimes there's things that we have to... Uh, are more there for study purposes more than just casual reading, Okay. Uh, fourth thing here, inerrant inspiration, which simply means this, there are no mistakes. When God gave us the scriptures, he did it without error. Not one mistake was made. There's no oopsies, which means this, the Bible cannot be proven false or have any mistakes found within it. Now, again, we have to be clear about this. That means God's truths and Satan's lies are recorded accurately in this Bible. If you want to, Joel Osteen, you can take a verse and read a verse out of its context and say something and say, see, the Bible says, and you go back and read and you're like, that was Satan saying that. That wasn't a good thing. That was a negative thing. Now, I'm thankful it's all recorded accurately without mistakes in the scriptures, uh, but that's why context matters so much. Verses don't live in isolation. They dwell within chapters and in books and in a whole Bible. And God's never going to use something contrary to the rest of His Word. So I'm thankful that there are no mistakes. Hebrews 6.18 says this, that by two immutable things, 
in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. And of course, we've got a few other verses there for sake of time. I'm not going to read. Number five, infallible inspiration, which simply means this, no deception. It means this, when God inspired the word and gave it to us, it not only is without error in its teaching, but its teaching is incapable of deceiving us. God didn't give you the Bible to play with you like a cat with a ball of yarn. That's not how our God operates. He gave us this so we would know who He is. This scriptures is not given to us so that we are confused about who God is. It's so that we might know Him. And so we understand that the scriptures are given in inspiration, uh, not in order to deceive us. Psalm 119, 116 says, Uphold me according unto thy word, that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, again, dealing with context here, uh, if you ever read through the book of Job, one day we'll preach through the book of Job. It'll take us two years, but we'll eventually do it. Okay? Uh, the book of Job, I love the book. It's fantastic. But if you know the book of Job, there's a guy named Job who has a wrong thinking about who God is. His thinking of God was simply this. If I'm righteous, then God will bless me. That was Job's thinking. The problem is that's what his other three buddies' friends' thinking was as well. So when they show up and they say this, Job, what would you do wrong that God's judging you? And Job says, I didn't do anything wrong. That's why it's not fair that he's judging me. And they have a conversation where each one of the friends tells Job about how low down and sorry he is. And then Job responds about how they're wrong and his life is miserable and it's unfair. <laughs> and he gets worse and worse as the book goes on where Job eventually kind of goes, if God was here, I'd fill his ear with my complaint. Well, you know, God did show up at the end of the book. And you know how much Job said? Well, the time God says, answer me, he goes, nope, <laughs> it ain't happening. And God helped him understand this. You understand, Job never got an answer to his questions. Why did this happen? But he did get an answer to this question. God is sovereign, and I don't have to know the answer. There's a wonderful truth in that book because it helps us when we go through problems. Amen. Absolutely. But if you want to, you can go to the book of Job, and you can pull up Eliphaz, or Bildad or Zophar, one of their speeches that they give to Job, and you can preach a whole message from them as if what they're saying is good, <laughs> and you can wind up with all kinds of a crazy sermon. If anyone preaches a sermon out of Job and just rips it all out of context, be careful, be mindful. But there's other verses that are that way. I'm thankful God gave us this book. If we'll read it in context, cover to cover, and love the teaching of this book, it is enable. It is incapable of teaching with deception. Right. It'll always lead you to the truth so that if there's a friend, like one of Job's friends, that gives inaccurate information, I'm thankful when you read the whole book, you get accurate information that that guy was a bum. Yeah. And God at the end of the book says, you three buddies are in trouble. <laughs> and he deals with them. And I'm thankful that God's word, although it records things accurate, also is incapable of deceit and leading us in the wrong direction. It would be profitable at this point to look at the credibility of the Bible before we look at preservation. So again, I'm going to try to do this quickly here, okay? How truthful is the Bible? Maybe a question someone's asked you before. Can we test parts of the Bible with known facts? Now, I will say this. This can be a dangerous thing because we ought to believe by faith that God has given us the Word. But there are things that we can look at and we can say we know this is God's Word because. Some scientific things. Human anatomy. Where we were deceived about 
what human anatomy was? You want to know one of the reasons George Washington died? They were over there covering him in leeches, bleeding him to death. When the scripture, the Bible that was laying right beside him said, the life of the flesh is in the blood. It was right there in front of him. Geography. When the rest of the world believed the earth was flat, Isaiah 40, 22 says, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. So just in case there's any flat earthers that are out there, the Bible says contrary to that. Biology, dealing with animals and living things. Where there's been confusion, the Bible has been accurate about animals and living things. Botany, dealing with plants. If you study the Bible, there's so many things in the Bible that deal with plants and information like that that are just so helpful. Now listen, there's things where we're just now scientifically and geographically uh, coming up and we're saying, wow, the Bible was right all along. And human, we're finally catching up with some of that stuff. Now listen, the Bible, it's one of those things that proves that God is accurate in His truth. Now, many scientific truths were stated in the Bible long before the scientific community discovered them. Of course, the importance of blood, the earth's position in space, moon doesn't shine, uh, the unseen number of stars, the air has weight. You can go through it, okay? And we've got verses that are there with that. But let's deal with preservation because we're out of time and we're going to do this. Buckle your seatbelt. Here we go, okay? The original scriptures have never been together in one place. Why is that? Because they were written over a period of 2,000 years by about 40 some odd different people. Now what's a miracle about that is they never contradict themselves in one place. Ever. That inspiration, truth, another one right there. But no one's ever had a collection of the originals, right? They don't exist. They're not around anymore. But we can be assured of this. We do have the Word of God. Well, what is that? It's the doctrine of preservation. So some questions to consider. Is the Bible intended for every man or just for some scholars? Why, why did God give us the Bible? Was it so that some smart guy in a room could read it all to himself? Or was it so that everybody could have access to who God is? Do we need to know Hebrew and Greek to fully understand the Bible? We're all in trouble. If some verses in the Bible are questionable in their translation, can we really be sure of any of the verses? Does the average Baptist preacher have the right to correct the Bible on the basis of the Greek and Hebrew text? Now again here, uh, we're never going to correct the scripture, but sometimes going back to the original language gives us more understanding, more clarity about what that word is or what that truth is there. I'll tell you this, I, I took one semester of Greek when I was in Bible college. There ain't no way I'll be able to sit down and do any better than having an English Bible right in front of me. And I'm thankful we can be assured that we have before us a preserved copy of the Scripture. So here's what the doctrine of preservation is. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. A silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou... Notice this, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So how, what does that mean, this doctrine in this verse? First, the extent. It goes all the way to the words. Notice in this it says, the words of the Lord are pure words. They've been purified, they've been tried. God will keep them. Which simply means this, God gave us His words. If He had the ability to give them to us, He has the ability to keep them. Okay? We also know this, the agent, who's going to keep this? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be you? We're going to do a miserable job of it. I'm thankful it's this, thou. 
God is the one who's going to keep His Word. God gave us the Word. God has the ability to preserve His Word. The period, how long is He going to do that? Well, in the Scripture it says here that we're going to preserve them from this generation forever. simply means God's Word will always be around. It's kind of a, kind of a weird idea to think that God inspired and did, did all that work for 2,000 years with all those different authors to give us His Word so that man might know who God is and have the gospel and know all that God wanted to do in sending His Son to die on the cross and then allow it to be lost in one generation. It doesn't even make sense. If God went through all that trouble to give us His Word, then He has the ability to keep His Word and give it to us. Again, we have a lot of verses here. For sake of time, I'm not going to take the time to read uh, all of those. Okay? Let me jump ahead here. Number four, the logic of preservation, which I've already mentioned this one here. Why would God give us the Bible, taking meticulous care with the very words of Scripture, and then allow their loss or distortion to occur over time? Proverbs 30 and verse number 5 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. So the question then becomes this, so which Bible is preserved? Now, we're out of time, and this is a big conversation to have here. Uh, we spent a bit of time on this when we went through our doctrine series and dealt with this. For English-speaking people, which Bible has the authority that we can look at? Now, without digging into all the ifs, ands, buts, and what's going on, here at Bible Baptist Church, we believe the preserved Word of God that God has kept for the English-speaking people is the King James Bible. Amen. That God has perfectly preserved it, and we have, and we can be assured to know this. I, I know this. When I open up this book, and I preach to you, and I encourage you to read this book, I can be assured to know this. You are reading the very words of God. And this is God's word that has been preserved for you as an English-speaking person that you can know that you are reading and believing, thus saith the Lord. Now that is a confident thing. Now here's something that has been unique to Baptists throughout the centuries is this. This is our authority right here. We believe it is inspired and preserved and we can put all of our hope and trust right here in what God has said in His Word. This will be what is preached. This will be the banner that we hold up as our only rule of faith and practice at Bible Baptist Church. I'm thankful to be a Baptist because we believe in biblical authority. Let's all stand as we come to a time of invitation here tonight.